G'day humans, it's a good time to be alive right now. There's no more rain in Sydney and New South Wales, not the rain we've had. We had horrendous floods over the southern summer and interminable, interminable rain. My roof is getting fixed, couldn't handle it, leaks everywhere. And it's just nice to have some cold, crisp, dry winter weather heading down to the snow this weekend. Then in a couple of weeks, I'm going to Europe on a holiday. Things are good. I hope things are good for you. Because things are bad in the world. And it's a moment to remember the difference between the macro and the micro. There's a grim prognosis for the global economy that came out this week from the World Bank. They say that the grinding war in Ukraine added to supply chain chokeholds, added to COVID lockdowns in China, added to inflation in energy and food prices, all mean that we're approaching an almost inevitable recession, a global recession. When you have a recession combined with inflation, we haven't had that since the 1970s. It was awful. Stagflation, they call it. It's very hard to deal with, very hard to get out of. At the same time, Europe's dealing with one of the biggest waves of refugees since World War II. Nearly 7 million Ukrainians, mainly women and children, have streamed across the border to escape that horrendous violence. What do central banks do about inflation without also ruining the economy? This week in Australia, the Reserve Bank surprised everybody by implementing the largest possible interest rate rise. People had thought that it might be a quarter of a percent. Some people thought it could be 0.4 of a percent, which would have been huge. They went with a full half a percent. So what's that going to do to the property market, which is already declining? What's that going to do to the economy and to business? I guess they're just prioritizing getting inflation under control over everything else. Meanwhile, how many people in poor countries do you think have been vaccinated against COVID? You know, our lives go on as basically they did before the pandemic right now. We're not wearing masks. We're socialising again. We're going to the theatre. Most of us have our three jabs. Most of us have had COVID. In poor countries, only 14% of people have been fully vaccinated. It's a bipolar world, this one. We're on two streams. I did an interview this week on my radio show. And by the way, if you don't listen to my radio show, you really should. It's on from 12.30 to 3.30 Sydney time every day. You can listen on the ABC Listen app anywhere in the world. Uh, And I was speaking with a Ukrainian family who have been resettled into a small country town in New South Wales, a tiny country town near Tamworth. And they are one of dozens and dozens of families who are being resettled into this regional area largely because of a couple, an Aussie couple, who watched the news and thought they'd do something about it. They heard that there were these Ukrainian families in Southeast Asia. This family had been in Thailand. They were running a tourism business for Russians visiting Thailand. Of course, Russians can't travel anymore. They can't use any money if they are traveling. And so their visas in Thailand were about to expire. They were going to have to go back to Ukraine to shelled out, blown up buildings and no home. So these Aussies applied for their, for refugee status for them, got them in, and they're helping to set them up in this little town. And this bloke, this Ukrainian bloke was saying, he's been talking to all his friends in Ukraine about how amazing Australia is. Excuse me, I almost get ch- choked up when I think about it. 
He was saying, when you go to a small town in Ukraine, you don't expect there to be a health centre and a, a doctor's office. You don't expect there to be a government office that will give you money and help you. You don't expect the government to be a place which will provide you with the support you need to get yourself set up. You don't expect people to be so friendly. He said, people, people here, they, they say hello in the street. I said, are you friends? They said, no, we don't know person, but they say hello anyway. Why do people say hello? They don't even know. And I thought, my grandparents came here as refugees from World War II, and they built a life for themselves. And it's a source of such gratitude for me and admiration for me that I was able to come to a country that was generous enough to welcome us in. And despite all of the foibles of Australia's quite brutal immigration policy, which ever since the Second World War has held that the only way to win over the Australian public and get their support for very high rates of legal immigration and one of the world's highest rates of humanitarian refugee resettlement was to make sure that people couldn't come here illegally. And therefore, if you arrived by boat, you would be imprisoned in this desert island. That's a more recent policy from the 1980s and 90s. But that essentially, Australians had to feel that we were choosing who came here and we were in control of who came here. And when you're not in control, you see the dysfunction that voters feel and the backlash that voters then support in figures like Trump and the far right in Europe. And Australia has been blessedly free from those kinds of backlashes Largely, I believe, because we have controlled the intake of refugees and of migrants. But when you hear from the horse's mouth, so to speak, when you hear from these people themselves about how surprised and grateful they are to come to this paradise, it gives you a new reflection on how lucky we were that through the odds of chance, through the cosmic lottery, we just happened to have been born here. And it reminds me yet again, that whatever you're seeing in the headlines about global events, your life is actually stitched together through a, a fabric of experiences between you and the people around you in your life, the people you actually know, the things you actually do on a daily basis. So if you ever feel yourself getting down on the state of the quote-unquote global economy or global politics or what's in the headlines, refocus your attention to the people you know, the people you love, people you can reach out to, with whom you can have conversations that are true and authentic, and sometimes, maybe if you're lucky, just a little uncomfortable. Today on the show, a real treat for you, a special live event that I did with one of the world's most important living philosophers, Peter Singer, the legendary Australian moral philosopher. He is currently the chief bioethicist at Princeton University, where he spends half the year and he spends about the other half in Australia. I won't introduce him too much because I do so on stage at this live event. I was honoured uh, by uh, Susie Jamil, who runs Think Inc., one of the most extraordinary uh, um, companies that arranges speaking tours for the world's most prestigious intellectuals. Uh, to be the moderator of Peter Singer's Australian Tour. We did an event in Sydney and in Brisbane. Unfortunately, I was unavailable for the Melbourne event, but you will be uh, hearing today the audio of our first interaction together. 
on stage in Sydney at the Enmore Theatre uh, with a packed out, paid crowd there to hear the wisdom and the insights of the one and only Peter Singer. Enjoy. Before we let Peter onto the stage, I'm going to introduce you to another brilliant man. He's our host for this evening. Uh, he is the host of Uncomfortable Conversations. He is the host of ABC Radio Afternoons in Sydney. And I'm so glad he's here with us tonight. Please put your hands together for Josh Zepps. Hello. Oh, my goodness. We get to kiss again. And we get to see incredible philosophers again. Is this anyone's first night out since the pandemic? Yes. One person down the front. Isn't that sweet? Oh, we know who has no life. But that's great. It's lovely that you're here. Welcome. Uh, as Susie mentioned, I host the afternoon show on ABC Radio Sydney. I have a podcast called Uncomfortable Conversations, and that's the last you're going to hear about me. This is all about Peter tonight. Although if you do like this conversation, it's probably worth subscribing to Uncomfortable Conversations, <laughs> of which tonight will be an episode. So you can always come back and listen to it again. Um, Peter Singer was educated at Melbourne Uni. He went to Oxford University, studied philosophy, got his PhD in Oxford. He's now the professor of bioethics at Princeton University in the States, just outside of New York, and is widely regarded as the world's most influential living philosopher. He's written, co-authored, edited, co-edited more than 50 books. The most influential first book that he wrote literally coined the term animal liberation. And that's where he exploded onto the global scene in 1975 and helped to really reshape not just philosophers thinking about the ethics of how we treat animals, but the layperson's thinking as well. And a lot of people who are vegans and vegetarians attribute their sort of awakening, their moral awakening to Peter Singer's work. And he went on to continue his thinking about how we think about the bioethics of life, of human life, and the sanctity of life, and our ideas about euthanasia and abortion. And he's gotten into lots of trouble for his opinions about things like infanticide and mercy killing of severely mentally handicapped people. One of the most influential books that I've ever read was his book, Rethinking Life and Death, which explores all of that and is an incredible read if you haven't read it. But in recent years, his work has really turned towards promoting the idea of effective altruism, the idea that we shouldn't just donate a bit of charity money when we can to causes that feel like they deserve our attention in the moment because there's someone in front of us asking for money, but that we can actually construct a systematic way of leading moral lives by donating to the most effective charities in the world and actually analysing in a kind of mathematical or rigorous or rational way what gets the biggest bang for a buck in doing good in the world. That's been hugely influential uh, in terms of public policy, in terms of private philanthropy, like people like Bill Gates, uh, and certainly in terms of the way that philosophers think about what it means to be doing good. Um, he's set up an organisation for that purpose. It's called The Life You Can Save, and it basically handpicks some of the charities that are most effective, that have the greatest yield in terms of alleviating suffering and promoting happiness. 
Um, and those charities, I mean, the best way, if you do want to get involved in that after, the, after you've heard this conversation, would be to have a monthly donation. Uh, if you do donate to The Life You Can Save, or rather to one of the charities that's recommended by The Life You Can Save, then uh, right now an anonymous donor is matching every do- every the first monthly donation. So if you if you pledge fifty bucks a month, that first fifty bucks will turn into a hundred bucks. Um, just a little bit of housekeeping: if you are a meet and greet ticket holder and you're going to meet Peter Singer after the show, then when this is over, stay in your seats and we'll get you. If you were foolish enough not to buy one of those premium tickets and you would like to. Uh, you can, after the show, you can go to the merch desk and you can upgrade your ticket to meet Peter and ask him any questions. Um, there is also a, a course, a digital course. So Susie Jamil, who you just saw, who's amazing, during the pandemic, obviously these live events went away and she was able to repurpose thinking into offering online courses. And so they've got a fantastic array of different ways of finding out about expanding your mind and finding out about all kinds of intellectual pursuits, one of which is a course on effective altruism. And there is 20% off that course at the moment. All proceeds go to charity from that course, 20% off if you want to if, if hear more after what you've heard tonight. Um, lastly, at the end of the show, there'll be a Q&A. We'll have half an hour of audience questions. So if something pops into your mind and you'd like to ask Peter Singer, uh, then you can line up down the, down the middle at the end of the show. I'll tell you when to. And uh, there'll be a microphone here for you to ask a question yourself. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is Peter Singer. Come on out, Peter. It's all right. Good to see you, man. Good to see you. I'm glad you got the memo about the shirts. <laughs> yes, definitely. Uh, I didn't mention the prize that you're about to get. He's getting a million-dollar prize. And what do you think he's doing with his... <laughs> it is worth clapping. What do you think he's doing with his million dollars? Yeah, unsurprisingly, it's not going to uh, a trip to Rio with hookers and cocaine. It's going to... <laughs> it's going to charity. And that makes me feel, Peter, like people like myself and everyone else in the audience should be doing a lot more and giving a lot more. Should I be giving more than I do? I don't know how much you're giving, so that makes it a little hard. I could ask you a million bucks, mate. No, but obviously, if you don't have a million bucks, you can't give that much. But, you know, I think if you're a middle class Australian, basically, and I presume the ABC pays you enough to be in that category, um, then (laughs) you should be giving. You've been living in the States too long. You, you should be giving something significant. Um, in, the, in the book, The Life You Can Save, which I know you can pick up a free copy of when you're here, um, there is actually a kind of a, a chart at the back, depending on what your income is, suggesting what you might give, starting off with pretty low percentages, like you know, 1% for people earning $40,000 a year. This, was, this is US figures, really, but roughly comparable, um, because you know, that's not that easy to live on nowadays. Um, and then rising as your income rises. So, um, you know, getting up to 5% if you're around 100,000, which I think is really pretty lenient. Um, probably can afford more than that, but I, I'm wanting to make it 
fairly easy on people because I want a lot of people to say, yes, that's right, I can do that. I don't want people to say, that's too tough, I'm just going to give up. So, um, you know, and then you get up to 10% and um, I think I top out at something like a third, like 33%, you know, for those who are really earning millions, just again, so that nobody can really say, well, you're asking me to make a big sacrifice. But why? Why should you give? Yeah. So there's two ways of, of answering that. One is to say, you should give because there are a lot of people in the world who are far less fortunate than you or me or probably anybody in this audience um, because, you know, instead of living on 40000 or 100000 or whatever it might be, they're living on about $2 a day, so less than $1,000 a year. Um, that's the World Bank standard for extreme poverty, roughly speaking, means that you can't reliably have enough to buy the food that you or your dependents need or to provide shelter or to get even the most limited, most basic kind of medical care if you need it. Um, and, you know, generally speaking, this is because they weren't fortunate enough to be born in Australia, but they were born in um, a low-income country and in a low-income family. So they have very few opportunities. It's very difficult to get out of that situation. And so what, you know, you might think of as pretty trivial, what you might spend on a cup of coffee, uh, is more than they have to live on for the whole day. And it's easy to imagine, therefore, that if you do give them something significant, if you give them, let's say, the equivalent of a, a daily cup of coffee for you, you're actually making a really substantial improvement in their life. You're enabling them to do that. You know, you're, you're doubling their income. And that makes possible all sorts of things, maybe to get together with some capital to start a small business, maybe to replace their leaky thatched roof, uh, which anyway needs constant maintenance to keep going, with a corrugated iron roof that will keep them dry and last for 10 years or more. So, um, so one reason, you know, one answer to your question, therefore, is because it's a really small sacrifice for you, if it's even a sacrifice at all, and it's a big difference for them. You're, you're reducing the amount of unnecessary suffering in the world. You're improving lives for people. But, of course, you might say, well, okay, but still, you know, what's in it for me, essentially? Sometimes when people say, why should I do that? That's what they mean. They mean, what's in it for me? And I do think there is something in it for you. And that's why I said it's not really a sacrifice. Yes, it's a small sacrifice in material terms. But I think one of the problems that people who are middle class or above in an affluent society have is, you know, to find meaning in their life. Not everybody, maybe, but a lot of people get to a point where they're saying, so why am I doing this? You know, what's the point? Now, maybe the work that you're doing you can see in itself is, is important and making the world a better place and maybe the work you're doing on radio is doing that. It's helping to get people to think and that's certainly true. But, but there's another thing that you can do and that is by thinking about what you can do to help others. So I think that what we refer to as altruism when we talk about the effective altruism movement is actually, yes, it's, it's helping others and it's motivated to help others, and I do consider it altruistic, but it actually has this other side that really makes our lives more fulfilling and more meaningful and, and better for us. And you know, I think there's, there's good psychological research that shows that that's true. 
I remember having a, a conversation with a friend about what he'd do if he won the lottery and uh, we were in a group of people and many people were saying, oh, you know, I'd give half to charity and then I'd spend this on that and this on that. And he said, uh, why would you give half to charity? I mean, like, yes, it's nice, but the reality is that poor people have always been around. Poor people have always been poor. You give half to charity and in a year's time there's going to be no material difference. There's still going to be poor. There's still going to be poverty in Africa. There's still going to be warlords and famines and that's been the reality of life since the dawn of time. In in the long grand scheme of things, it doesn't make any difference. Well, yes, there's always been people in, in poverty, but if we're talking about the kind of poverty that I was talking about, extreme poverty, sometimes called absolute poverty, where it's not just relative to others in your society, but it's poverty in the sense of can you meet your basic needs, there's actually been an enormous reduction in that um, over the years. You know, Depending how far back you go, there was obviously a time when the vast majority of the population was in that state. Um, but even if you go back relatively short period, so, so the book, The Life You Can Save, um, the edition that you can get to take home if you want is a 2019 edition. Uh, I it was first published in, in 2009. Now, in the 2009 edition, I say that the number of people in extreme poverty um, by the uh, World Bank standards is um, around a billion in um, currently, in fact, it, it went up a little bit because of COVID, but it got down to, to 736 million um, in just, in just uh, 10 years. So, you know, pretty significant drop. And in fact, you know, although, as I say, it went up around 800, it's, it's coming down again. So you shouldn't think about, well, you know, my giving to charity, your lottery winner friends, uh, that, that, is that going to solve poverty or not? Obviously, it's not. Bill Gates can't solve poverty. But um, it is reducing it. And so think about it in terms of there are specific people that you can help um, with your donations. And certainly with half the lottery prize, you, could, you can help whole villages to get safe drinking water, for example, um, so that you know, they can, uh, don't have to walk to a polluted river for, for an hour each day and boil up the water when they come home. You can um, provide bed nets so that they're not going to get malaria and their kids are not going to die from malaria. There are a whole lot of things um, that you can do with it, uh, and you're making a difference to those people. And, and it's just a mistake to say, you know, it's drops in the ocean as if somehow it doesn't change anything. It changes very specific, very concrete things. Yeah, it matters if you're the person who, whose life it changes, doesn't it? I suppose you don't think of Absolutely. yourself as being just yeah. a, a part of a big amorphous blob of historically, uh, you know, um, underprivileged people. Right. I mean, actually, what I said to him was I stole one of your metaphors about the, the person walking past a, a lake and seeing a drowning child uh, and ha having just bought a beautiful pair of shoes. Do you want to relay that to us? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, um, that's very relevant to thinking of the people in poverty as individuals, not as uh, amorphous blobs, as you put it. Um, so if you were, if you were walking past... That's, that's, that's what I say every time I go to a developing country. I wave out the window of the train and say, hello, amorphous blobs and people. Okay. Um, <laughs> you want to be careful when you're being recorded. You know. <laughs> um, so it's, um, I actually talk about a shallow pond rather than a lake because I want to make it clear that you're in no danger of drowning if you jump in and save this child. The only bad thing that's going to happen to you is you're going to ruin your expensive shoes that uh, you don't have time to take off. But 
there's a child there. You see that this child, a very small child, has fallen into the pond. Um, you don't know why, but there's no parent or babysitter just rushing down to save the child. So it's really up to you. If you don't jump into the pond ruining your shoes, this child will drown. So then I ask my audiences, I can't see this audience terribly well with the lights in my eyes, you know, so would you jump in and save the child? Um, and generally everybody raises their hands and I'll take it for granted that you would all raise your hands too. So if that's the case, <laughs> if, if you're not going to raise your hands, you can tell me why in question time. Um, if that's the case, then... Um, think about your situation with regard to people in extreme poverty, right? Because for the cost of an expensive pair of shoes, you could certainly, you know, make a big difference to somebody's life in extreme poverty. Maybe you could, you could save a life even. Uh, depends a little how expensive your shoes are. But, you know, the psychological difference, I grant, is that you can see this child in front of you drowning. And so that's why I think, really, you would jump in and save that child. You, you know, get the information about here's an effective charity um, that can save lives if you give them a donation, um, and people don't quite feel the same because they don't see the identifiable individual, and that's something in our psychological makeup, I believe, that we, we evolved to help people in need when we see them in our own society. Of course, we didn't evolve for a situation where we can send money to the other side of the world and help people, so we don't have that same emotional impulse to do it. But when you sort of sit, sit down and think, well, isn't it just as bad if a child dies on the other side of the world who I could save as if a child dies in front of me? It's pretty hard to say, no, no, it's not, it's not bad. It doesn't matter if the child dies when I don't see the child. It only matters if the child's in front of me. That's, that's sort of personalising the wrong in a way that seems to me to be fundamentally mistaken. And you're confident that charities are good enough now, the good charities, that when you donate to them, that has a direct one-to-one -one impact on somebody's life. And if that's the case, then does that mean that a literal eradication of poverty and hardship is within reach if we were all to follow those precepts? So um, I do think that if you go to one of the best charities, and this is not a, not a statement about charities in general or average charities, but because there's good research being done now about which of the charities that are most effective, completely independent research by a number of organisations, um, you can go online, you can look at thelifeyoucansave.org and um, you can see a list of about 20 charities which have been carefully screened and I think then you, if you give to one of those, you can be highly confident that it will be going to people who need it. You know, of course, you know, every charity has to have some administration, otherwise it wouldn't even be able to check up on the programs what it's doing. Um, so you know, let's say 90 cents in every dollar maybe is, is going to be directly benefiting the people um, who you want it to be benefiting. Um, so yes, I do think that uh, you can be confident of that. Now, does that mean that you could eradicate poverty? Probably not completely because you know, you're friend who said, you know, well, there's always going to be warlords and tyrants and so on. Um, that's probably true, at least on a, on a local level. Um, and then there's going to be disasters that, you know, it's very hard to get to all the people who are affected by them. So the complete eradication of poverty, um, we're, we're not going to see any time soon. Um, but 
the continued reduction of poverty, so that you know, two or three hundred million fewer people being in poverty um, just in the ten years between those two additions, um, the sort of level coming down. The, the Sustainable Deve Development Goals talked about eliminating extreme poverty by 2030. I think that's, again, a little optimistic. But um, the idea that you know, there's mass poverty, that there's hundreds of millions of people in a state of uh, extreme poverty, I think, yes, that could be eradicated if we had more will, if we put more resources into that. I think we could reduce that to you know, pockets, smaller pockets of people living in different parts of the world that for one reason or another whether political or geographic, are, are really hard to reach and, and get to. And in addition to alleviating poverty and improving the lives of people, you're obviously very concerned with alleviating the suffering of animals, of, uh, of non-human animals. Um, let's not, I don't think, rehash the basic principle as to why we shouldn't have industrial agriculture and concentrated animal feeding operations where we're torturing uh, animals and for the purpose of slaughtering them for meat. Because I think that your success... Do you agree I, with that already? <laughs> <laughs> I, I would hazard a guess that if we did a poll, uh, yeah. you know, that, that your success and the success of others, I mean, it's almost a half century since you wrote Animal Liberation. And I think that case has largely been won amongst uh, most right-thinking people. But there is a counter pushback, which is, okay, let's exclude those horrendous uh, industrialised farming situations and talk more broadly about eating animals. Uh, there is a cycle of life. This is natural. The lion eats the gazelle. Even if you're a vegetarian, the combine harvester churns up grasshoppers. You know, we're all in this together. And therefore, eating animals is a natural, the natural order of things. What's the retort to that? Well, first, I, I don't really like this idea that the natural order of things is a good order of things because not only you know, the natural order of things may be for, for us in, as a particular species to be omnivores and to eat meat, but maybe the natural order of things also is for us to wage war against our neighbours um, and we don't want to say, therefore, that's okay. Maybe the natural uh, order of things is uh, for males to be dominant over females. You look at most societies, that's the case. Um, you know, but we may want to change that. We may say that's not the right thing to do. So, um, so my first point is that I would object to the argument from something being natural to it being good. I think, I think that's a mistake. Secondly, um, you know, your point about the combine harvester churns up the grasshoppers and maybe it occasionally churns up some small uh, you know, mass or something like that as well. Um, so this is, not a, this is not a point about purity. This is not a point about saying, my hands are clean, I'm not in any way responsible for any bad thing that happens to any animal. Um, that would be a very difficult way to live, um, and especially if we think that insects are sentient as well, that's a separate question, but you know, then it becomes, I think, quite impossible. Um, but to me, it's about minimising the, the suffering that we cause and, of course, trying to make the world better and do positive things as well. So, so the fact that um, there's less suffering going on in some other forms of animal raising than there is in the factory farms that uh, you agreed with me shouldn't be there at all um, isn't a reason for saying, OK, so then I might as well go on and purchase these products. Um, I think, I think we can do better than that. 
um, and we can aim higher. And again, I don't think that this is a real sacrifice. Um, you know, once you're enjoying the way you're living and eating and um, you're feeling that this is fully in accord with your values, uh, I think it's a good way to live. You just, uh, you just mentioned in an aside uh, the question of whether or not insects are sentient. Is that what matters here, sentience? I mean, how do we construct a, a sort of a, a hierarchy of value of living species, or do we do that? And maybe you want to sort of tell us what speciesism yeah. is. Yeah, okay. So, all right, I'll start with that part of it. Um, speciesism is a term that I didn't actually coin. It was coined by uh, somebody I knew when I was in Oxford called Richard Ryder, um, but I suppose I popularised. Um, and... It's intended to make an analogy with those other isms that uh, we are familiar with and disapprove of, specifically, say, racism or sexism. Um, and it's intended to say that just as... Well, maybe just as is a little simplistic, but you know, in a somewhat analogous way to the way in which uh, we think that discrimination on the basis of race or sex is wrong, so discrimination on the basis of species is also wrong. That is to say that um, the interest of a being, let's say the interest in not suffering and not feeling pain, um, matters less if the being is not a member of the species Homo sapien than it matters if the being is a member of that species. Um, I think is a prejudice uh, in favour of our own species and against other species. Um, and that's not to say that you know that there might be things about about Homo sapiens that are valuable um, and that maybe give our lives a different kind of value from beings who don't have our cognitive abilities, who don't think of their life in a biographical sense, who don't sort of plan for the future and work now in order to get benefits later, you know, maybe years later. Um, you know, those things do make a difference to the value of a life, to how wrong it is to take a life, I, I accept that. But if you are capable of feeling pain or pleasure, um, and that's, you know, sentience is like a shorthand for that, I think, uh, then your interest in feeling pain or pleasure should not be discounted because you're not a member of our species or of any particular species. So that's what speciesism is, trying to avoid that, and that's why sentience is important. If a being is sentient, then there's something that it's like to be that being. There's something that it's like to be that being when pain is inflicted on it. Uh, if a being is not sentient, let's say it's, it's a plant, and I, don't, I know there can be some discussion about this, but I don't believe that plants are sentient, then there's nothing that it's like to be that lettuce or whatever it might be. Um, and so, you know, even though you... You might, let's say you're growing your own lettuces and you're ready to harvest, you pull off the leaves or you cut it with a knife. Uh, you know, it's not feeling anything. So in that sense, it doesn't have the relevant kind of interests um, in not feeling pain or, or pleasure. So that's why I, I do think it's, it's relevant to ask which beings are sentient. And as my remark about insects suggested, I think there's, there's some grey areas. So I have no doubt at all that vertebrates are sentient, um, their nervous systems are so similar to ours, their reactions are similar to ours. Usually, if they're experiencing pain and you give them analgesics of the kind that we get, you know, whether it's aspirin or paracetamol or something like that, um, 
their pain behaviour is relieved. Uh, so I, I think it's pretty clear about vertebrates and obviously some invertebrates. If some of you have seen the film about the octopus, my teacher, or <laughs> seen, seen videos about octopuses solving problems, um, it's impossible to believe that they're not conscious beings um, and yet they're, they're mollusks, they're not, they're not vertebrates. But what's, what's interesting about that, Peter, is that a lot of people's conclusions about eating octopuses after watching My Octopus Teacher on Netflix were changed because of the intellect of the octopus. And I think this is an interesting thing to tease out. Like, does intellect matter or is it just capacity to feel pain? There's that scene in, in Pulp Fiction where they're talking about, he says he doesn't, he doesn't eat pig, uh, sorry, because it's a dirty animal. And he, you know, they're comparing dogs and pigs and he says that it would have to be one charming motherfucking pig uh, <laughs> in comparison, comparing the personality of a dog and a pig. Uh, like, does... Does, a, an, does an organism's ability to sort of understand the world come into its moral standing? I think it does come into its moral standing, and that's why, as I said, with humans who are capable of seeing their life as a whole and planning ahead and so on, I, I think that is relevant to the wrongness of taking life, not to the relevance of just inflicting pain, um, where you know non-life-threatening pain, but, but I do think it's, it's relevant in some ways. With, the, with uh, my octopus teacher, I'm, I'm not sure whether some people realise for the first time that an octopus is, is clearly a, a sentient being because they might have thought, you know, well, it, it's not even going to feel pain or something, or, or, or did they think that it's a being who can relate to other humans, as in the film, and therefore it's wrong? Um, well, it seems a, to be like a capacity for affection or a capacity for, rela- for building relationships yeah. in that animal that seems morally salient to people. Yeah, some curiosity maybe as well. Yeah, yeah people identify with that, I think. Um, that's probably true. Fallaciously? Uh, again, if, if what we're thinking of doing is, is hauling the animal out of its environment and uh, you know, killing it or allowing it to suffocate as we do with... with uh, tens of billions of fish each year, um, then I think it's fallacious. Yes, I think, you know, whether they can f- could form relationships with us uh, is not really relevant to that. But, you know, I can understand why people feel a different kind of attraction. They identify with it more um, and they think that there's more going on in the, in the conscious mind of the octopus than they knew before they saw that film. So is it worse to eat a dog than an oyster? Than an oyster? Yeah. Well, I'm not sure that an oyster is sentient, although an oyster and an octopus are both mollusks. Um, the octopus clearly has a quite evolved, developed uh, nervous system, and oysters really don't, maybe because they Well, maybe they let's say move. a prawn so that it's a fair competition. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they've both got nervous systems and brains, dogs and prawns. Yeah. Um, I think we can be more confident still of the kind of pain that, that vertebrates or the dogs feel, let's say, than, than shrimps. Again, you know, shrimps... I think probably we should give them the benefit of the doubt and assume that they can feel pain, but you might think that it's in some ways less acute than that of a dog. Um, but the comparison between a dog and a pig, I think, is quite wrong because you know it wasn't for nothing that George Orwell made the pigs the bosses of Animal Farm. Um, they really, I think, they are fully equal in intelligence to dogs. And if people don't relate to them um, or think that they're dirty, well. You know, it's just that we don't choose them as companion animals, maybe because dogs are pack animals, they make good companion animals, they look up to others in their pack as we, we are, if there are, you know, dogs we're living with, and, and pigs don't do that to the same extent. Um, but, you know, I know that there are people who've lived with pigs and 
had good relations with their pigs. It's George possible. Clooney. George Clooney had a pig. All right. Okay. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. It must be good. Yeah. Uh, the one criticism of your work, Peter, in recent years has come from the sort of Silicon Valley, uh, you know, techno-utopian dude bros over there who... <laughs> who perhaps feel that it's a little bit centred on the here and now and the sort of practical nuts and bolts of alleviating suffering right now and not enough, not forward-looking enough because, you know, thinking about, like, the, the philosopher Nick Bostrom's theories about what the future is going to hold, maybe you can just articulate some of that, the idea that we are on the, on the cusp of... A, an era of super-intelligent machines, of unifying human beings with artificial intelligence, of the flourishing of humankind, the likes of which we could never have dreamed, planetary expansions and so on, and that really we should be diverting resources into making sure that that kind of stuff gets off the ground, not just making sure that you know very, very poor people are a little bit less very, very poor. Yeah, um, that is an interesting line of thought. Um... So there are some philosophers, Nick, Nick Bostrom, uh, who's an Oxford philosopher, is um, sort of certainly one of the pioneers of this, but uh, there's an Australian called uh, Toby Ord, who's now in Oxford, who's written a book called The Precipice, which is about this, um, and there's another Oxford philosopher called Will McCaskill, who's coming out with a book quite soon that I've read the draft of, um, and they're wanting to look into the long-term future, right? And they're not just talking about next century or even the next millennium, um, you know, they're talking about ethics for the next billion years. Um, and I find this a little hard to fathom. I have enough trouble getting people to think about ethics for people who are on the other side of the world um, or for other species. Um, but their point is, you know, and just to try and state the argument for them in the, in the, in the strongest way, um, the claim is that if our species survives the next century or two and continues to develop technologies in the way that we have been over the last uh, century, uh, we will be able not only to live on this planet, but to colonise other planets. So the, the Silicon Valley dude that you probably most had in mind is, is Elon Musk, right, who's setting out to colonise Mars fairly soon, he hopes. Um, but, you know... And Bezos, they're all at it. They're all building their giant penis spaceships to go into... <laughs> Into space. I think Musk is actually more, more genuinely thinking of the long-term future and is certainly connected more to the effective altruism community than Bezos has. Who was, Mackenzie Scott might be interested in uh, a bit of effective altruism, but I don't think Bezos is particularly. Um, but uh, so to, 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 to put this, this argument, um, not just colonising other planets in the solar system, but um, going, you know, there is, what, a billion stars in the, in the galaxy, and um, so many of them will have planets that could be inhabited and we'd be able to travel there, and we could spread ourselves throughout the galaxy. Um, and then, as you said, you know, maybe we can also put conscious minds into silicon chips and um, we can have more intelligent beings who are much more low-maintenance in the sense that uh, you know, they don't need to grow food for themselves in the same way. Uh, so, so um, Nick Bostrom has this sort of vision of an absolutely vast number of lives. He, he does some calculation about how many lives this, the universe could hold, and he comes to um, 10 to the 54th. So those of you who are mathematically inclined will know what an absolutely 
unimaginable number that is. And then, then the argument goes like this. So suppose that we were to become extinct. Suppose that something really bad were to happen. Um, and with Putin's nuclear saber rattling, it's not too hard to think of one thing, although um, Bostrom is actually in his book, Superintelligence, is more concerned about us getting artificial general intelligence wrong and uh, somehow designing intelligence that's smarter than us but that um, is not benevolent um, and that uh, wipes us out and may not even be conscious itself but may just be very you know, intelligent in a non-conscious sense. So, so his point is then that if we were to become extinct, uh, there would be this incredibly vast loss of value the loss of the value of all of these lives. And there's also a, an assumption here that because our technology is improved, we will be able to give all these vast numbers of beings good lives. So we'll know how to make life rich and fulfilling beyond anything that we can even dream of at the moment. Uh, so, so therefore, they say, rather than worry about trying to improve the lives of a billion people in poverty here on this planet, we should be thinking about this in much vaster number of lives because, in a sense, we are at the hinge of history, right? If we don't survive through the next century or two, though, none of those lives will happen because there doesn't seem to be a lot of intelligent life around the universe, right? None of it has come to see us yet. So, you know, there may be intelligent life in the universe. It's so vast, but maybe not in the Milky Way galaxy. So maybe, you know that would remain uninhabited for a very long number, amount of time. So, um, so that's kind of the point, that in a sense, anything that you could do which will increase the probability of our surviving, getting through this, era, this time when we can colonise other planets and we're not in such danger of extinction because whatever happens on this planet wouldn't wipe out our species, um, that that's what we should be focusing on. And do you agree with the premise that we are at a hinge point in history? I think it's possible that we are, yes. Um, I do think the technological progress is remarkable, and I think that if we do survive another century, it'll be even more remarkable beyond what we can imagine. So um, I'm, I'm somewhat attracted by the argument. I'm, on the other hand, I'm put off by what seems to me the, the very low chance that we would know at this stage what to do about some of the problems that, say, Boston wants to talk about, that is when would we get this intelligence, artificial intelligence, that is smarter than us, right? Um, there are predictions, a lot of predictions around, and they range from 20 or 30 years to sometime, you know, 50 or 100 years. Now, most of the people that I talk to in the AI area think that the 20 years is, is completely unrealistic, that, uh, you know, we, 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 we've got machines that can beat us at chess, but that's a very limited set of parameters, and it has nothing to do with being able to sort of outsmart us in directing the future of, of the planet. So if you think that it's, let's say, 50 years in the 2070s, then I don't think that we would know at this stage how we would be able to guard against these machines that are still 50 years in the future. Um, 
being, well, I mean, all being malicious. The, all of the all of the pre-development is taking place now, right? And I mean, fifty years sounds like a long time, but Animal Liberation, your book, was published almost fifty years ago. The Simpsons has been on the air for twenty-five years, so it's just two lots of the Simpsons, right? It'll it'll come. The argument is it'll come sooner than we think, and instead of it being an arms race between for-profit companies in China and the United States, just trying to get s- smart computers to be able to sort of outwit each other, maybe there should be ground rules now about, even if it's just simple principles that are embedded into all of these systems so that they can't ever do harm to human beings or whatever that might be. I I have absolutely no problem with that. Um, And I do think that it's good that there are very smart people like like Bostrom and Ord and McCaskill and um, there's a Global Priorities Institute that they got, uh, anyway, Ord and, uh, yeah, no, Bostrom too, they all got set up at Oxford and they've got money to do other research, and there's a Future of Humanity Institute at Cambridge. and So I'm, I'm glad that there are these centres and people are thinking about this. What I object to is the idea that the money that we're putting into helping people in extreme poverty or fighting climate change, which, by the way, most of them don't think of as an existential risk because they say, yeah, you know, climate change could be bad, but there'll still be a, you know, a few million people surviving in Antarctica or in the north of, north Pole, north of Norway or Siberia or somewhere. Um, so, so it's not an existential risk because then eventually the planet will cool down and uh, again and we'll repopulate the Earth and yes, it'll set back technology and colonising other planets by a couple of thousand years but you know, as a fraction of a billion years, that's nothing much. So, um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think um, that we ought to be putting all of these resources into that. Um, I don't think we know enough. I think it's, it's good to have people trying to work out ground rules, as you say, but um, it's too much of a diversion of, from really important causes that I think are important now for something that's very speculative as to whether it's going to make a dif- difference in the right direction. Another thing that uh, a lot of the Silicon Valley tech bros are into, uh, as, I, as I termed them, uh, is longevity research and the, uh, you know, the possibility that we're on the cusp not only of uh, radical transformations in technology and transportation uh, and artificial intelligence, but in how long we can lead healthy lives. You know, there, is a, there are a whole cohort of people who think that you know, there, are, there are children alive today who will be living uh, routinely lives of 150 years uh, in good health. Would that be moral? Would that be moral? Um, yeah, I think it would. Um, I mean, it depends on a number of other things, really. I think So it depends on whether by the time we, you know, we get to this point, we have um, taken care of some of the issues that I was talking about, about extreme poverty, whether um, people can get an education, whether uh, people, women in particular, can control their fertility as they might want to, um, whether there is a concern about growing population in the world or whether that's, in fact, you know, in some countries already there's a concern about falling population, but, but not globally. Um, so to some extent it would depend on that because you could argue that if, in fact, the world is starting to exceed its capacity um, and technology hasn't enabled us to solve those problems, then um, to extend the life of people, to double the lifespan of people is just going to create more of a problem. Um, so you know, there, there, there could be circumstances in which that would not be moral, but in principle, if you could do that, and, and especially if you could make it available to everybody who wanted it, um, I would see, see that as a desirable thing to do. Um, it assumes also, by the way, that 
you don't just live to 150, but you live to 150 in a state that is as good as it is yeah. now at whatever age you think is a good state. <laughs> sure. I mean, so you don't give any credence to the argument that, uh, you know, for those additional 50 or 60 years of life, that person is taking up resources that really belong to future generations or to uh, younger people. So I would hope that that's not the case um, and that the technology has improved so that we're not, the resource is not limited in that way. You know? Does that mean we shouldn't be doing this research till there aren't people living in poverty? It doesn't mean that we shouldn't be doing the research, but uh, I think if it were really to be implemented on a wide scale um, and, and there were still that shortage of resources, that might, might be the case. I mean, you know, it's, when people talk about using up resources that other people need, it, it does assume a, a zero-sum game, and I think that's not right. Um, if you have, you know, you might argue that if you have, if you extend the productive working life of uh, people, including scientists and people who are developing new technologies uh, by 50 years. Um, they'll use their experience that they've built up to do even better things than they've done now. So you might actually, it might be a tool for making life better for everybody. I mentioned in the introduction that some of your most controversial opinions have to do with the sanctity of life uh, ethic uh, surrounding euthanasia, uh, infanticide and abortion and so on. W where does your thinking come from on that? Can you explain it to people who don't understand? Yeah, so it, it comes from, a, I think, a couple of different places, really. Um, the simplest one is that it comes from the general view that I hold that suffering is a bad thing. And if you, know, if you ask what's a common thread in my positions about global poverty, about animals, and uh, about the critique of the sanctity of life ethic... Um, it is that there's needless suffering in these areas that we could um, make changes in the, in the arrangements so that there wasn't that kind of suffering. And, in fact, I think the easiest one to change and one that has now been changed in significant parts of the world and I will say in every state in Australia except the one I'm in now um, is that when people are terminally ill or incurably ill and they judge the the condition of their life is such that it's not worth living and they don't want it to continue. Um, they, instead of nature taking its course, which it often does in cruel and painful ways, they could choose uh, to end their life humanely and peacefully in the circumstances that they want. Um, so that's my views about uh, voluntary euthanasia, or as we're now calling it, voluntary assisted dying. Um, which, as I say, every state in Australia except New South Wales um, now has legislated for, and uh, a number of uh, a number of other countries and a number of states of the United States, and and you know more are doing it all the time. Um, Spain has quite recently, so it's not as if Catholic countries aren't doing this, and uh, Portugal looks like they're about to do it. Uh, so, um, yeah, I, I think that's something that's happening, and I think. Uh, you know, whether, whether you, like me, you think it's really important to reduce suffering or whether you think uh, individual autonomy and freedom are good things, uh, I think you ought to be able to agree that that's a, a sensible reform. The laws that we have here in Australia tend to permit people to uh, kill themselves uh, you know, with the uh, assistance of a physician when they're in that state, but they tend not to allow the physician to do it, uh, him or herself. 
which means that people with motor neuron diseases, people with dementia, people with all sorts of conditions that make it impossible for them to make that judgment uh, and for them to do it themselves are still left in the lurch. When should it be okay for a doctor to kill someone? Um, I think I, I think that you're right about the laws we have in Australia and, and actually the laws in the United States and the various states that have that are similar. Um, but... Uh, I think the Netherlands, uh, Belgium and Luxembourg certainly allow doctors to give lethal injections. Uh, and I think that that's reasonable. I think the, 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 law, the way that the laws in Australia have been formulated was really political. Um, you know, it was a compromise to get something through Parliament. Um, and I think it was worth doing because I'm a pragmatist and I think we should think about consequences. It, it was worth doing for that reason, but it's not ideal. Um, some of the cases that you talked about are being discussed in different countries. So um, you talked about people with, with dementia. Um, our laws don't allow that. You have to actually be competent at the time. Uh, but uh, Canada, which uh, has the same sort of laws that most of Australia has now, um, is, has actually set up a parliamentary commission to look at uh, the idea of giving advanced directives for people in early stages of dementia or who know that they're getting dementia so that they wouldn't have to be competent at the time. They could um, specify that when they reach a certain level, they would like to have their life ended peacefully. Uh, and I would support that kind of reform as well. I want to talk about the pushback that you used to get from the religious right that you now increasingly get from uh, progressive university students. But before doing so, it might be worth articulating what they're most upset about. It's not just euthanasia. It's also the question of severely mentally handicapped people and uh, infants who are born with no prospect for a, a good life. How should those cases be handled? Right. So this is where I said before that my views on voluntary euthanasia or assisted dying really stem from my views about the reduction of suffering. Um, but I started thinking about the case of how we ought to treat uh, infants who are born with um, very severe disabilities. Uh, when I was... Well, I, I, there were two, two strands that come together here. One of them, I suppose, was thinking about when it's wrong to take life, which was influenced by my views about animals, my view that speciesism is wrong. Um, and one thing that, you know, once, once you think about that, then you realise very sharply that the lives of all human beings are regarded um, as sacrosanct, uh, that's the sanctity of life doctrine, or as inviolable would be another way of putting it. Um, and uh, at least until these laws that we've been talking about came into effect, the, the legal view was that it was always wrong directly and intentionally to take the life of an innocent human being. Uh, but that was never thought about animals, um, not only because we kill animals to eat them, but um, euthanasia, of course. You know, if, if you have a dog who's really old and suffering, um, everybody would think it's the right thing to take your dog to the vet and um, have your dog put to sleep peacefully rather than continue to suffer. So I started thinking about, well... What are the differences here? Why would some people think that the killing of a normal of a human being is, is worse? And um, the only thing that I could think of that would defend this, justify it, is something to do with the cognitive capacities. And in fact, I mentioned it earlier, the idea that um, we think about our lives over a longer term, that we have plans for the future, 
um, and to you know killing one of us will interrupt those plans would would make what you've been doing uh, pointless or futile um, because you couldn't live to fulfill your plans and that's generally not true of of non-human uh, of non-human animals um, I don't think they plan to the same extent uh, and so then if you think that that makes a difference and then you say, well, so here's, a, here's an infant who's, that's been born with uh, very severe, severe brain damage, whether it's um, genetic, whether it's because of premature birth and a massive bleeding in the brain that has destroyed most of the brain, which sometimes happens. Um, and uh, we go to great lengths often to keep these infants alive. So we put premature infants on respirators and keep them alive. Uh, particularly, I would say, more in the United States than here. Um, here, doctors tend to actually be more ready to discontinue those kinds of treatments. Uh, hopefully, after consultation with parents, when I started thinking about this in the 1980s, doctors were more paternalistic than they are now. Um, now, they, I think, generally will talk to the parents about whether they're okay with turning off the respirator on their child because of the child's poor prospects. Um, and that seemed to me to be uh, a reasonable thing to do, um, given that, again, um, there isn't this capacity for planning your life. And, of course, that's true of all infants, not just ones with disabilities, um, but it may be true for some people, older people, who have very profound um, disabilities. So uh, they can't make decisions for their lives. They can't plan for their lives. And I think, therefore we are effectively deciding whether they will live or die. If we put them on the machines, if we treat them uh, with antibiotics when they get infections, they will live, or more likely to live. If we don't do that, they're more likely to die. Um, and they can't decide, they can't express an opinion on it. So I think we have to do it. And then you might ask, well, who are the people who should do it? And certainly in the case of, of infants, I think, the, the parents must play a decisive role in that. Of course, the parents should be advised. Um, they can be advised. I used to say they should be advised by their doctors. Then people from disability organisations came and talked to me and said, doctors are not always well informed on what life is like with particular disabilities. Um, they don't know. They may, be, they may have prejudices against disabilities. So I then changed my view and I said, you know, parents should consult with organisations of uh, parents of children with this disability to get a better sense of what it's like to live with such a child. Um, or if, you know, if it's a case where you can consult with the children themselves, um, then you would do that. But generally we are talking about people who don't have the mental capacities to do that. Um, though there might be some exceptions I'd make where the physical abnormalities are very severe. So, so it's really a question of saying, well, somebody has to decide who should decide. And so, my position has never been, um, as it's sometimes, I think, misstated in, by my critics, that people with a certain level of disability should not live, that they should be killed. I've never said that. What I've always said is, um, I think parents, in consultation with their doctors and in consultation with uh, people who are well informed about what the condition of their child is, is going to be like, um, they should make these decisions. And, but. They shouldn't only make them as they do now, in fact, by consulting with doctors and saying, we think it's okay to withdraw the respirator or we think it's, okay, you know, it's better not to do that operation that you're suggesting that 
would be necessary to save the child's life. I think that if the child is not on a respirator and is not suffering from some other medical condition that needs medical intervention, but the child's prospects are so bad, um, then, as with voluntary assisted dying, there should be non-voluntary assisted dying. It's not involuntary assisted dying because that suggests it would be against the will of the child and the child isn't capable of having a will. So I refer to it as, as non-voluntary euthanasia or non-voluntary assisted dying. But the examples there that you've given, Peter, sound a little bit like just the withholding of proactive attempts to prolong the life of the child, like turning off a ventilator or yeah. administering antibiotics and so on. And some people think that there's a difference between an active omission and an active commission, that it's one yeah. thing to just sort of not try to keep a baby alive, but it's another thing to actually kill the baby. Right. And, and I don't think that that is an important distinction. So... Um, I was using as examples of what we are already doing, what's happening you know, in hospitals here in Sydney, uh, I'm sure quite regularly, and every, basically in every country that has neonatal intensive care units, um, there will be decisions made to turn off respirators and machines and so on. Um, and I don't think that there's really a significant difference. Um, so when you, when you do that, it, it sort of it adds a random element um, the random element is, can this baby breathe on its own? Or does this baby get an infection um, that will prove fatal? Uh, or in some cases, like case of spina bifida, with severe brain damage, um, is the fluid on the brain, the hydrocephalus, going to build up to a point where it'll kill the child? Um, you know, so and that seems to me irrelevant to the real decision, which is what is the child's going to be life like? Um, I show my students uh, a film that was shot in a neonatal intensive care unit in uh, in, in New England, in, in uh, the north of England, uh, north of the United States, um, in which the, the medical team actually allowed themselves to be filmed discussing these questions. And one of the, um, it's actually a, a senior nurse, says, um, you know, have the, the, the so the, the parents were sort of the, the, the issue of whether to, whether to turn off the respirator was raised with the parents, but they had trouble deciding um, about it. And so the days are going past. And one of the nurses says, um, if we don't get a decision from the parents soon, the window of opportunity is going to close, right? So what she meant by that was this premature baby who has to be on a ventilator because it couldn't breathe, lungs were too immature, is getting more mature. And if we wait another week, probably when we turn off the ventilator, the baby will breathe on its own. And then the parents won't have the choice. So, you know, that's surely, it's surely not relevant. If you're getting these people, if you're trying to make this important decision, is it better that this baby live or is it better that this baby die? That decision shouldn't depend on um, have the baby's lungs developed to the point where the baby needs, doesn't need a ventilator to breathe anymore. Um, so, you know, I really think you ought to be focusing on, on the, the significant question and not on the more mechanical question of, of how do you bring about that end. Now, if there is a creator of the universe who is uh, guiding all of our lives uh, with a gigantic moral scorecard, it's easy to see why that is an abysmal uh, position to hold, and so it's therefore easy to understand why conservative Christians have had you in their targets for uh, many decades. Um, but now you've sort of talked about the increasing pushback that you get on campus after 
perhaps a decade or two of some sort of general uh, detente between you and your critics, which is roiling up again from the opposite side of politics, from uh, younger people who think that this is what exactly? Uh, so firstly, let me just go back to what you said about God's scorecard. You obviously have insights into the kind of morality that God holds, <laughs> which I must admit I don't have. written thousands of years ago in a book that is absolutely perfect, Peter. So actually, you know, if I were a religious believer, there, there was a, people that, people, you know, I'm, I'm a utilitarian, as some of you will know, that means I, I think that we should judge morality by whether actions have good or bad consequences, um, and most people associate that with, with Jeremy Bentham, the late 18th century founder of utilitarianism. They don't know that also in the late 18th century there was a Reverend William Paley who wrote a book about um, moral morality, moral theology. It actually sold better than Bentham's works at the time, um, and he said that God so loves his creatures that he's created that he doesn't want them to suffer. Um, and he really ends up with a utilitarian kind of ethic. So, you know, if I were a religious believer, I think I would believe that <laughs> that loving God would, would not want his creatures to suffer unnecessarily. But your, your question was leading up to this pushback from the left, right? Um, yeah, and so this is, this is something that's, that's happened within the last decade or so in particular, uh, and I do find it a matter of concern you know, coming see myself as being on, on the left uh, uh, anyway. Uh, also, um, I think it's troubling that people wanting to shut down ideas and discussion um, are no longer overwhelmingly for the, from the right as they were, but um, now probably you would have to say, certainly at least on campuses, are more often from the left than from the right. I mean, I think they, they clearly come from both sides, um, but uh, um, this idea that there are, you know, things that people must not say, people should be silenced or cancelled or deplatformed or whatever the term is, um, if they say things that might offend people, particularly if they say things that might offend vulnerable or marginalised groups, um, seems to me to be to be quite wrong. I, I think we need to have a robust discussion, uh, we need to have freedom of thought and discussion and expression, um, and the fact that some people will be offended by a view is not sufficient reason for stopping people saying it. Because, you know, almost anything, thank you, um, al almost anything that, you know, you can say is, is going to offend somebody, right? I, I could easily say that somebody just saying, you know, I think it's fine to, uh, to go out and have chicken for dinner, um, I could easily say that I find that very offensive because um, I feel for the sentient beings, uh, the chickens who are almost certainly being factory farmed, um, having miserable lives, and that's a terrible thing to say. So, you know, but I, I don't want to shut down people who want to defend uh, eating that. I think I want to have a, a, a debate and argument with them and try to show them why that's not a view that they should be holding. Uh, so, you know, I think that while we don't want to needlessly offend any, anybody, you know, that's, that's a bad thing, but uh, there are important questions out there. There are important questions that have consequences that uh, need to be discussed and need to be raised. And, uh, you know, when people have tried to shut down discussion in the past, they've very often been wrong. Um, 
I'll give you an example, actually. I just mentioned Jeremy Bentham, who was a very brave, uh, bold thinker, far ahead of his time. Bentham um, wrote a great deal, um, and there's a great deal of what he wrote that was not published. Um, and he didn't publish it because he thought it would not be possible to publish it and still be you know, a respected person who was listened to. Um, and among his unpublished writings, some of which are only just now being published, um, you know, nearly 200 years after his death, um, there are writings saying, basically, why is somebody's taste in having sex uh, a reason for making him a criminal? And he's talking about uh, having same-sex relations, which, which was a crime, um, and many people were destroyed for that. So, you know, in, in those times, that would have been something that people would have wanted to cancel, a shocking idea that uh, it was okay for people to have sex with someone of their own sex. Um, and there, there are many other examples. Uh, so I think that we need to learn from that and need to know that there will certainly be some views that will shock or offend some people that in 20 or 50 or 100 years people will say, of course, you know, that was right. Why didn't people see it? The pushback from the people who are, let's say, pro-cancel culture, although no one would characterise themselves that way, is that, uh, sure, you can say controversial things, that's your right, you have freedom of speech, and we have freedom of speech to heckle you, shout you down, say that you're fermenting hate speech. So, you're, you know, you're, all, you're welcome to, from their perspective, demean and denigrate people living with disabilities. Uh, you know, if you're talking about the reality of uh, biological sex, uh, you're able to demean and denigrate trans people. If you're talking about, uh, you know, whether or not men have a greater aptitude for certain careers than women, then you're able to demean and denigrate women. But this is all a class of hate speech. It's the white patriarchy talking yet again. It's evidence of white supremacy. Uh, and so they're going to respond as vociferously as they possibly can. Why is that not legit? I think they should respond um, you know, strongly um, by putting arguments or evidence for why their views are right and uh, other views are wrong. Um, and they should certainly be entirely free to do that. Um, but to heckle to a point where uh, you can't be heard, where other speakers can't express themselves, um, is not respectful of freedom of thought and discussion or not respectful for the idea that it's arguments and reasons that should lead us to form our views rather than um, whether we, you know, basically it's, it's a kind of force if you're, if you're preventing people from, from being heard, from listening to an audience. Um, it's, it's, and I think actually it's, it's really counterproductive. Um, I think that uh, you're, you're giving up, if you heckle someone, you're giving up the opportunity to show them why they're wrong. Um, and if you're persuaded that they are wrong, if you're convinced they are wrong, you should be able to show that. Uh, students becoming more fragile? <laughs> um, I think to some extent uh, people are more sensitive, yes. Um, you know, there's, more, there's a lot more talk now. You know, when I was a student, people didn't talk about being traumatised by what somebody else said. Um, and now you do hear people saying that, you know, that it was traumatic for me that somebody said this or that. Um, now, you know, you could say, well, maybe people were being traumatised by things that were being said by the white, pat white patriarchy, um, but they didn't even dare to say that. Mm, maybe. I don't know. Um, I think actually people are pretty resilient, um, you know. Well, I suppose they're resilient if they're trained to be resilient. 
and they're fragile. I don't know whether it's training to be fragile, aren't they? Well, well, you could say that you know, telling people that you know you should be offended by this is training them to be sensitive and and, and more fragile. Um, look. I may have a bias. You know, um, my parents came to Australia as, as refugees from uh, Austria after the Nazis marched in, so they spent months under the Nazis. Um, my wife's parents uh, were Polish Jews who survived the Holocaust in Poland. Um, both, both of them came to Australia. Um, they didn't sort of say, I've been traumatised by what happened and I'm going to you know, fade away or lie down, go to bed and not get up. Um, are you seriously they, saying... They got on with their life. Are you saying that Nazism is worse than misusing a transgender pronoun? Yes. Watch your mouth. You're being recorded, Peter. Um, in a few minutes, uh, we'll wrap up the main portion of the conversation. So if you do have a question you'd like to come up, just find a, a volunteer in a white shirt who will be down the front with a microphone in a second, and you can start coming up uh, if, if you'd like now. Um, I just wanted to wrap up by talking about your journal, your new academic publication, uh, Peter, the Journal of Controversial Ideas, which is uh, founded largely in response to precisely uh, this point. Uh, why did you launch it and what do you want it to achieve? Uh, so what we are trying to achieve is provide a, uh, a place where people can publish rigorous articles. It's an academic journal. Um, we're looking for papers that pass peer review, so papers we receive we get in an anonymous form and we send them out to reviewers who don't know who wrote them and who report to us on whether they think they're sufficiently uh, meritorious to be published in a good journal. Um, sometimes, quite often, we send them back for revisions. Quite often, we reject them, of course. Um, but if they're good enough and the authors want to remain anonymous, so they want to publish under a pseudonym, not under their real name, they can do so. So... For example, young, untenured academics who want to say something that would be controversial, um, that might lead to campaigns against them, and, and that has happened on just the kinds of issues that you mentioned, um, don't need to fear that they're going to wreck their academic careers. They don't need to fear that they'll get death threats, and that's also happened to people who've written controversial um, pieces like this, um, and uh, it provides a venue for them. Uh, it's a free and open access journal. You can go to journalofcontroversialideas.org. We've published uh, one issue so far. We're going to publish another one, we hope, next month. Uh, we do rely on donations, sort of small donations from quite a lot of people is the way we want to run the thing. It's not very expensive to do. Um, but we see it as a kind of a safeguard, a safeguard um, uh, of uh, keeping, keeping good discussion at a high level, well thought out, based on reasons and evidence, going even on controversial ideas, on controversial issues that other places would not publish. And we've already had articles submitted that people said were rejected by other journals, not because of a lack of merit of the argument, but because the editors thought they were too controversial to publish. Can you give a couple of examples of what they were, or do you not want to spoil it? Yeah. So in the first issue, we published an article about wearing blackface, in other words, putting on makeup that makes you look like you're African when you're white, which um, is generally regarded as a terrible thing to do. Um, this article was taking a more nuanced view. It um, looked at circumstances in which that might be defensible and others in which it wouldn't be. Um, and that article was submitted to another journal, 
um, and got favourable reviews. Um, but although the reviews were sent to the author and the author was assuming that he was going to be accepted, before that could happen, George Floyd got murdered. Um, and after the murder of George Floyd, the editor wrote and said, I don't think we can publish this paper without saying that you know, there was anything to do wrong with the merit. So, um, so that was one example of a paper that would not have been published. And there were, th there were three articles that we published that were published under pseudonyms. Two of them were on the transgender issue. Um, and again, the authors, I think, wouldn't have wanted to publish them under their own names. And the third one was actually one which is sort of closer to what we were talking about, my interest, um, but it was about a defense of violence uh, in defense of animals, which is, I have to say, is not something that I support. Um, I don't support the use of violence to try to save animals from things that I think are terrible. Um, you know, largely, I guess I don't support it because I think it's, it's just counterproductive and tarnishes the whole movement. Um, but that author um, also did not want to publish uh, mm. under his or her own name. Interesting stuff. Uh, let's uh, take some, some questions. Do try to keep them brief. Remember that questions end in a question mark. They are not long screeds in which you can finally tell Peter all the things you believe. Hi. Um, <clears throat> sorry. I thank you so much um, for your talk today, Dr Singer. I wanted to ask you about unintended consequences because some of the things that you support, in particular euthanasia, especially the possible euthanasia of the mentally disabled or babies, um, that argument was used by Nazis to euthanize a whole bunch of mentally disabled people. And um, I think a lot of people are worried that legalising certain things, even if they agree with your message about reducing suffering, that they're worried that it would have this unintended consequence of bringing about a society that as a whole leads to more suffering than not legalising it. So what would you say to that? Yeah, thanks for the question. Um, firstly, although it's, it's certainly true that the Nazis um, murdered a lot of um, people with intellectual disabilities... Um, they were not doing this on compassionate grounds for those people themselves. They were doing it because they thought they were basically um, a blot on the Aryan race. Um, and you know, evidence that they didn't think it was a benefit for the people was that um, they uh, exempted people who had um, served in the First World War. Um, so, you know, the fact that you served for your fatherland was a reason why you wouldn't get killed if you later became, you know, were, became um, uh, mentally in, incompetent. Uh, so I think that that's one difference. Um, but yes, look, I, I think it's, you know, I understand people worrying about the possible slippery slope. Um, it's interesting that when voluntary euthanasia came in as well, people, you know, that was a big criticism, particularly when it started in the Netherlands, which was the first country to openly practice voluntary euthanasia. And people said, you know, this will start with people who are terminally ill or in pain, great pain, and it will end up killing the racial minorities or politically undesirable. Well, it's now 40 years since there was open euthanasia in the Netherlands, and uh, I don't see any signs of that kind of, of slippery slope. So... Um, I think we can draw lines. I think if we have to be careful. We, we do have to have standards and safeguards. I quite agree. But um, I don't think it's inevitable that we will go down the, the slope that you're 
describing. Um, hi, 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 Peter. Thank you on behalf of the world for everything you've already done. Do you think there's value in getting meditation and mindfulness integrated into the primary and secondary school system? Uh, okay, that's a little question, a little sort of outside my expertise, although um, I have myself um, practiced meditation uh, at various times and sometimes occasionally still do, less regularly than I used to. Um, so I do find it helpful um, and I certainly think it can be helpful in the school system. Actually, I have a uh, a, a granddaughter who um, finds meditation quite helpful uh, and got that through the school system. So, um, yeah, my short answer is I think this is something that is, is, is well worth trying. Um, it would be good to get sort of broader data on it. I know there is already some, some data, but I think uh, it's always worth trying to monitor introduction of programs like that and, and look at the outcomes. Um, but I would not be at all surprised to find uh, positive outcomes from that. Uh, hello, uh, Peter. Thank you very much. When we were talking about your critics from the left, particularly on your views about disability, the conversation went into a discussion of the legitimacy of sort of cancel culture. But when your critics on the left are behaving and actually making an argument, what do they tend to be saying and what is your response to that? Uh, right. So the argument that they make is, is actually a little bit like the... Uh, woman who made the, the, the first question, um, a kind of a, um, a, an argument based in terms of consequences, um, and that is that uh, there is discrimination against people with disabilities in the society, and I totally accept that, um, and I'm totally opposed to, for example, the fact that somebody has a disability interfering with them getting employment for a job that they can do as well as somebody without that disability, that's quite wrong, or uh, discrimination in housing or anything like that. Um, and the fear is that this will give people more of the sense that life with a disability is, is a bad thing. Um, um, so, you know, is that likely to happen? I, I, I think that, again, we need to clearly distinguish cases of people whose, you know, really lives do not have those possibilities from people who can have um, very good lives and uh, should be protected against discrimination and we should try to make life easier for them and give them access to all the things that people without those disabilities can enjoy. Um, you know, but but I, th I think that sort of the, the category of, of di disability here is too broad. Um, I've, I've had people who were you know, every bit as articulate as I am but happen to be in wheelchairs, telling me that they represent people with disabilities, and I shouldn't be talking about people with disabilities. Um, but you know, I would never suggest that the fact that somebody is in a wheelchair means that they shouldn't enjoy their life as, as much as anybody else. Um, so you know, they're, they, they're no better placed, I think, to speak for people with profound intellectual disabilities than, than I am. Thank you again for your talk. Um, my question is about the increasing nature of the healthcare system to reflect on its own value. And as we kind of, you know, impose social welfare and interventions and things like that in the healthcare system, increasingly we want to reflect on how much utility they actually provide. Um, obviously, under your philosophy, we want to look out to provide the least suffering or the greatest kind of benefit to everyone in society. Um, are institutions that assess the value of, you know, healthcare interventions or social interventions, are those a necessary consequence of such a philosophy? 
Um, so, yeah, just so I'm not absolutely sure that I understood, but you, you're asking about, is it a question in philosophy how you evaluate the healthcare interventions? Is that not what quite. I'm asking, are institutions, like, you know, statistical institutions that actually assess, um, you know, are these surgeries in this situation necessary or do we actually get more benefit without providing such a surgery? Are institutions like that necessary to actually evaluate the consequences of certain decision-making protocols? Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, certainly I think, you know, just as with effective altruism, we should be, if we have a certain amount of money that we can donate um, and we want to improve the world, we should look at research that tells us how can we best use that. And similarly, if we have a, a national health care budget, I think we want to use that as well as we can. So we need institutes that try to assess how much good you get. And that's a complicated question, which raises both empirical issues and um, ethical issues. So you want to consider, for example, well, should we, you know, if, if, if there's a drug that can prolong somebody's life, somebody, let's say, is terminally ill, but you have a drug that could prolong their life for another month or two, but it costs $100,000, um, and for that amount of money, you could um, do simpler repairs. Maybe you could have, do operations on people with arthritic hips, which would enable them to walk again when they can't walk. Um, and let's say you could do 10 of those operations for $100,000. Who should you be helping? Um, there's, there's ethical judgments uh, there about the, the, the amount of good that we're doing and, and there's uh, factual information we need. So I, I think we should be doing that. I, I think otherwise we're sort of just guessing as to how we use our, our healthcare budget and I don't think that's the right thing to do. Uh, thanks for a really great conversation. Um, getting back into the animal world a little bit, we talked about how public opinion tends to value one animal over another, uh, maybe not listening to the science completely. Um, and basically, I'm wondering on the behalf of fish, so do we, uh, as researchers, scientists, the public, um, you know, what can we do in the face of the, the mass amount of suffering? Is there any low-hanging fruit? Yeah. Um... So I, I do think that there's there's a lot we can do, um, but it's uh, it's sometimes more difficult to get the public to really think about these issues. And I, I so as um, Josh said, I wrote the first edition of Animal Liberation, getting close to 50 years ago, um, and I didn't say very much about fish because I thought, gee, it's so difficult to get people to even think about chickens. Really, um, you know, yes, they'll think about pigs maybe or, or cows, but um, less sympathy for chickens, but I, I did do a lot about chickens because they're really the most abused of, of factory farm animals just because each individual chicken is worth so little that the producers don't really care about them as individuals. Um, but now I'm, I'm working on a revised edition. That's my next major project, which I hope will come out early next year. And I am going to say a lot more about fish than I did in the first edition because um, you know, there, then I thought uh, you, know, you can't get people to really do much care about fish because they, you know, they don't look like us, they don't have expressions on their faces that show that they're suffering, they don't vocalise. Um, but when you think about the vast numbers of fish, uh, which, you know, including both wild-caught and farmed fish, and, and when we farm fish, by the way, at least carnivorous fish like salmon, we have to kill you know, many more fish. Um, we grind up into fish food and pellets and feed to them um, than you actually get out of the... the 
the fish farm. So, you know, it's a vast number of, of animals, uh, hundreds of billions we're talking about at least. Um, and I think we do need to think about trying to do something about that. Um, what we can do is really hard to know. Um, I'm hopeful that we will develop either plant-based fish-like products as we're developing plant-based meat products or possibly uh, cultured from fish cells, uh, which is again something we're doing with meat. And um, maybe if we can do that, we can at least reduce the immense amount of pain and suffering that we're inflicting on fish. It's from all the fish fans in the audience. Hi, Peter. Um, coming from the animal rights activism community, I have some friends who are anti-natalists and have had vasectomies. Uh, given the amount of money and time it takes to raise a child and uh, you know, how those can be used for effective altruism, is it not a moral obligation to avoid having children in today's world? So um, you're thinking about people who are really going to use the money that they would spend on raising a child for um, importantly, important causes for reducing suffering. Um, I think there is a case to be said for that, um, but I am troubled about the possibility that if these people don't have children um, and if people who don't care about the suffering of animals or about the suffering of humans continue to have children, are we essentially going to breed out the kind of compassion? Uh, I think it's a real problem, actually. I don't, thank you. Um, so, uh, you know, as I say, I, I respect that view if that's really what they're doing with the, with the money they're saving, but I, um, I think I would become uncomfortable if that became very widespread um, because, you know, we, we don't really know a lot about what is it that leads some people to be more compassionate and more, live more ethical lives than others, but it would be surprising if it had nothing to do with either genetics or your upbringing uh, as a child and the values you get from your parents. Um, my guess is it might be some combination of, of those, um, but certainly I think that they'd play a role. Hi, Peter. Thank you for your talk tonight. Uh, the most recent IPCC report noted that it's code red for humanity, noting that there's a rapidly closing window. And given this context and given that I'm about to start my career and like many other young professionals, it seems to me that it would be deeply unethical not to act on climate change. And so my question to you is, with regards to the ethics of choosing career, is it unethical to choose a career that is not going towards helping humanity in terms of climate change? Uh, I think there are various um, ways of choosing a, an ethical career. Um, I certainly think that climate change is an enormously important issue. Um, but I also think that reducing extreme poverty and... Uh, of reducing animal suffering are, are also important issues. Um, so I, I'm, I'm not going to say that climate change dominates all other issues. But I, I do, you know, I think it's, it's great that you're thinking about choosing an ethical career at all because a lot of people give very little thought about the ethics of their career choice. Um, they choose on the basis of, as, as people sometimes say, what I'm most passionate about. And, and what I'm most passionate about may not be something that is... Um, the best choice in terms of, of living ethically or making the biggest possible difference to making the world a better place. So um, I do think people should think about that. And 
And then, of course, you know, even within what you just mentioned, let's say I, I did want to focus on climate change, there's a big variety of possible careers. So you could say I should become a, a research scientist and find uh, how to make clean energy cheaper and more effective. That would be one thing. Or, um, you know, again, you could be a climate scientist and provide even further evidence of the seriousness of climate change. But you might decide to go into politics because politics needs more people who are committed to the seriousness of climate change. Um, and you might even, this might sound a stretch, but you might even decide to go into the finance industry because you could earn a lot of money that way and then you could donate a lot of money to organisations that are trying to alert people to the danger of climate change. Now, you know, if you were going into the finance sector for that reason and somebody said, hey, um, your job is to raise more money for uh, Adani, um, I think you would have quit. But... Um, but, you know, there's a lot of things in the finance sector that are, that are fairly neutral. I mean, they make money for some people rather than others, but they don't destroy the environment or make people poor or anything like that. So, um, you know, there are some people in the effective altruism movement who make those choices. Um, and I might mention if anybody, you know, is thinking about options for ethical careers, go to 80,000hours.org, just the, the numbers 80,000 and hours, um, and uh, you'll find a lot of information on ethical career choices there. Can I just ask a quick follow-up, because mm. I think there are a lot of university and high school students here who would value the advice. What about going into the industries that are doing the worst in the hopes of being an agent of change within those industries? I've heard this, you know, go and mm. work for an oil company. It's almost analogous to the point that you were making about antinatalists. You know, we, we want the right people to be having babies and we want the right people to be in oil companies. Is it ever justifiable to go and work in an oil company? So are you thinking of somebody who, who's kind of is cloak and dagger and, and pretends to be enthusiastic <laughs> about oil until they get to the top and then they say, hey, we're going solar. We... No, I... <laughs> No, I think I think most I think most oil companies nowadays uh, rec you know openly recognise the need to transition, so are openly recruiting people who who see the need to do so. Well, if you if if that is the case, and if there's a company that is looking for people who will help them transition, um, and you'd be talented at that, um, then I think that's acceptable. But I think you you would need to be really careful that you don't get subverted by the company ethos, which, you know, might have a PR side that says transitioning is really important, but um, doesn't really do that as enthusiastically as they would be because they're aware that that's going to uh, mean that some of the assets that they're currently holding become valueless. Right, yeah. Uh, hi, Peter. Thank you for the talk tonight, and it's a pleasure to speak to a fellow sentientist. Um, you got into some hot water about comments concerning Anna Stubblefield, a carer who was convicted of aggravated sexual assault against a man in her care with severe intellectual and physical disabilities, stating it seems reasonable to assume that the experience was pleasurable for him. You were also forced into a somewhat awkward position on ABC's Q&A regarding sexual relations with animals where you refused to object to a particular sexual relationship between a woman and her dog. The common thread between these two cases to me seems to be the issue of consent, which leads me to ask, can a principle of consent fit into your utilitarian framework beyond the idea that non-consensual sex often involves or results in suffering? Uh, I think what you just said is, is the, the, the key thing that is um, ultimately underlying why we have um, strict laws prohibiting and making a crime of um, sex without consent. Um, but that doesn't mean that in every instance um, 
where there is non-consensual sex um, and let's say there is no suffering, that doesn't mean that that shouldn't be a crime. It may be that you know, the, the laws need to make a clear line here to prevent uh, the great harm that will otherwise occur. Um, I think the interesting thing about these, these debates um, is that uh, anything to do with, with, with sex of some kind that is not currently accepted um, just arouses a real deep animus, a real hostility. Um, and I think it's quite parallel to what I mentioned Jeremy Bentham was thinking of if he were to talk about same-sex in uh, you know, 1820 or whenever he was writing, um, that it would arouse. Um, and it seems really hard for people to think about this without those sorts of hostile responses. I mean, I, I stand by the views that I hold, um, certainly in the, the Stubblefield case, where um, both I and uh, Jeff McMahon, who's a professor of moral philosophy at Oxford and a good friend, um, thought that she was being penalised again because of this reaction. And, and incidentally, although a lot of people jumped on us, we published an article, an opinion piece in the New York Times, um, and a lot of people jumped on us and abused us, including a lot of people from the left. Um, but uh, she appealed and um, the judgment was set aside. Um, the, the appeal court ruled that the, the judge had misdirected the jury um, and then there was a bit of plea bargaining went on and she pleaded guilty to um, not complying with the views of the Guardian um, you know, or not containing the permission of the Guardian for some element of, of her interactions with, with her um, and didn't do any more jail time. So um, I feel that our judgments were... were vindicated in that case. Um, and as for the Q&A, well, you know, very often on those programs you think, gee, I could have said that a bit better afterwards. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, the fundamental point I think I, I would stand by. I'll take that as a comment. <laughs> um, we've got less than 10 minutes left, so if you're more than about four people back, and I'm sorry that we won't get to you, we'll see how many we can burn through, but if you're like six, seven, eight, nine, ten, probably not going to happen. Go for it. Hey, Dr. Singer. My name's Tim, and I'm more interested in the idea of why should we take individual responsibility for problems such as poverty and absolute poverty when these issues seem to be uh, consequences of more institutionalized problems, such as colonialism and other uh, foreign policies of developed nations. Um, is our time and money better spent uh, making those more directly responsible, uh, to take responsibility for these problems and sort of educate people on domestic and foreign policy so they can better be informed with their voting decisions and stuff like that? Well, um, as somebody who's concerned about the consequences, I think it depends on where you're going to get the, the best consequences. So, um, I mean, you know, the, the colonialist wrongs that were done to many countries that are now in poverty have been done. We can't go back and, and change the past. So um, it's only things that we could change at present. And the question is, what can you change? What's, what's politically realistic to, to think that you might change? And what would, in fact, if you did change, have those effects? So um, I certainly support various kinds of structural change. So one of the things when I'm in the United States that I talk about when people talk about change in poverty is the United States has huge farm subsidies that it pays often to wealthy farmers and that enables them to produce their products more cheaply. Australia doesn't do this, of course, because we're an agricultural state and we would 
do better um, without the competition of the United States, so we don't like that either. But, um, but the, the, the subsidy that I particularly focus on is cotton. The United States has um, grows some cotton um, in the South uh, that would be, without subsidies, significantly more expensive than cotton grown by peasant farmers in West Africa, um, growing you know, small, small holdings, um, many of whom are, are in poverty. But um, because the United States subsidizes its cotton, it sells it for below the price that they're producing and drives down the price and therefore makes these peasant farmers extremely poor. So I certainly support, for example, efforts to change that, to, to get rid of those subsidies that are harming people in West Africa. Um, and you know anything like that where you could see that there's, there's something that could be done, we might achieve this, it would make a big difference for millions of people, um, I would support... You know, if you have a, a good pathway and a reasonable probability of success, I would support doing that as an alternative to giving to individuals, you know, providing them with bed nets or um, helping them to get out of poverty in some other way. But it, it's all going to depend on, on how plausible is it that you're going to succeed. I'm, I'm not into kind of gestures, which means, you know, that I feel good, but actually doesn't make any difference at all to the people who need help. In the final five minutes, we'll have two more questions. Uh, so if you're not one of the next two, then our apologies, uh, and you can take a seat. If you want to meet uh, Peter, you can always upgrade to, <laughs> to the meet and greet <laughs> VIP package. Hi, and thank you so far. Um, so I guess I was wondering about what you were saying about the non-voluntary assisted death in the infant space and two differences, I guess, that came up for me. Um, and apologies, I'm not familiar on the other work you've already done. Um, but in terms of one of the differences being on the person who then makes that decision, it's not, I guess it's, it's not a passive decision, it's an active decision and what that then has on them and, and how they feel about that and knowing whether it's right or wrong. And then following on from that, then who is to say if it's not a passive decision of taking them off life support or something like that, then at what point is that right to do so if you're not just you know being passive about it what at what point do you know whether that's the right thing to do so I guess I was thinking well, what's your answer to that and where do you draw the line as to whether you should determine whether it's the end of someone's life yeah so on the first bit of it I mean what you said about the, the burden of making that decision was the reason why when I first got into this in the 70s Doctors would say, you know, no, it's too hard for, for parents. We have to bear that burden. But, but that's really incredibly paternalistic. Um, and, and a lot will then depend on which doctor you get, you know, a doctor who thinks that you ought to treat every patient to make them live or a doctor who doesn't think that. Um, so that's why I sort of formed the view that really the parents ought to make um, the most of that decision. Now, are they going to make the right decision? You know, probably not in every case. Um, but if you just say you're not going to make the decision and you are going to treat every child um, so that they live, then you're certainly going to make the wrong decision, I think, in, in many cases. And you'll get children who will suffer for some months or maybe uh, years um, and then will die um, without having you know, experienced any positive times in their life at all. Uh, so that's why I think just saying, you know, abdicating decision-making at all isn't really the answer here. Thanks. Hi, Peter. Thanks for the talk tonight. Um, I'm just curious, you talked before about disability advocacy groups and taking 
I suppose, evidence from them and incorporating it into your views on non-voluntary dying. And I'm curious, what are some other sort of high-profile issues where you've changed your mind, you know, in the public spotlight after incorporating new evidence? And what did it feel like, I suppose, defending those new positions on the other side of the fence? Uh, so I think, you know, we should... I, sh I should be open to learning things from people, including people who are strong critics, um, and that seemed to me to be a, a, good, a good point, a good point of change. Uh, so, in terms of other things, um, I, I mean, there are some philosophical questions that I've changed my mind on, but it's, it's difficult in a short time to explain um, some, of the, some of the reasons for that. Uh, so, otherwise, um, perhaps I've been persuaded to be to go further um, in terms of what I suggest people should do in their personal diet and their personal choices. Um, further on, in, say, in terms of advocating being vegan rather than just being vegetarian, I think that's something that has become more acceptable, partly that the world has changed. Um, so again, I sort of soft-pedaled that a bit in the first edition of Animal Liberation um, and uh, wouldn't do so now to that extent. Okay, should we... Yeah. So there's one more. Do we Last have question. One? Yeah, yeah. Well, right. uh, you can you can do your best quick rapid fire answer. All right, I'll keep this quick. Thanks, uh, Peter, for the talk today. So my question is that I mean it's often said that we have the um, I don't know knowledge um, and resources to solve the big problems of the world, but not the political will. Do you think that that's true? If so, how do we solve uh, those political problems? If not, what do you think is the gap to you know to to do that? Thanks. <laughs> Wow, that's a big question to end on. Because <laughs> if, if I... If you got I 30 knew, seconds, Peter. If yeah. I knew the answer, I would be doing it, right? Um, so I, I often, you know, in a technical sense, we often do, but it's the human issues that are the problems for us, right? I mean, um, I said something rather quickly talking about global population, that, um, you know, if, if, if every woman who wanted to control her fertility had access to it. But in fact, that was a little bit glib, because it's not just that they cannot get contraceptives. It might be, for example, that their husbands don't want them to use contraceptives um, and they're not in a position where they're emboldened to stand up to their husbands. So, so that's the human problem. And, and how do we solve that? Right? Because that's, that's a cultural issue. They're living in a culture in which women give deference to their husbands and husbands expect their wives to do it and may act violently if they don't. So um, those are the problems that I think we don't really have answers to as yet. Maybe we will at some point, we can hope, but uh, they're very difficult. Uh, last question, Peter, comes from me. Uh, when I have four-year-old twins, and when they are your age, what will the world be like? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure why people think that giving, having a philosophy degree gives you a crystal ball. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wise but, uh, soothsayer, do tell. But I, no, will it be better? I, what, what, I, what's your general hunch? I mean, will it be better or worse? So that clearly there's things that can go very seriously wrong. Uh, climate change has been mentioned. That's a big overhanging problem, and it's quite possible that the world be, will be worse because of that. Um, it's quite possible, unfortunately, that they won't live to my age because um, Putin will take out his threats to use nuclear weapons and... You know, I don't know whether NATO will respond. I mean, you know, the, that, that particular doomsday scenario, which uh, was very present when I was young during the Cold War um, and then started to decline, did just certainly go up uh, a few notches. 
But if we can avoid that and if we can mitigate the worst effects of climate change, um, which will take a lot more action, rapid action, um, then I think the world will be better than it is now. Because I do think, I guess in that sense, I'm a technological, a guarded technological optimist, that we will be better at producing food, we will be better at um, limiting uh, or people will control their own fertility in ways that um, we were worried some years ago that they wouldn't and I think there are signs that they might. Uh, and um, we, I also think that not only is there technological progress but that over the longer arc there is moral progress. And again, that's pretty hard to see at the moment. You know, we've just gone back to a situation that's reminiscent of what Nazi Germany was doing in the 30s, um, what uh, Putin's been doing in the last month. Um, so uh, it's hard to say in that sort of time that there has been moral progress. But if you look over a longer perspective, um, one of my less widely read books is called The Expanding Circle. Uh, and it talks about the idea that the circle of morality has expanded uh, over millennia. You go back and morality was mostly tribal, you know, then it was national. Um, we eventually got to the idea that we would talk about all human beings, although very often we really meant all men. Then we got to include uh, women as well. And now at least we, we talk about some kinds of ways of including animals in that sphere. So I do see that as a kind of long arc of moral progress. It's sort of Martin Luther King line, um, adapted a bit. Um, but of course with, with ups and downs in it. So with a lot of caveats, maybe your four-year-olds four will live in a better world uh, than we're living in today. A reminder that if you are a meet-and-greet ticket holder, stay seated. If you're not and you want to be, you can get a ticket at the merch desk. If you would like to become a monthly donor to The Life You Can Save, Peter Singer's list of charities, if you do so now, then the first monthly donation will be matched one for one. It'll be doubled. And also that you're getting 20% off the, uh, the online course that Think Inc. is running in effective altruism. Thanks to Susie Jamil and Think Inc. Thanks to you for coming. Please thank Peter Singer. Uncomfortable Conversations is produced by Stefan Postuma. Follow me, Josh Zepps, on Twitter and Instagram for all the latest. May your day be fruitful, your mind humble, your enemies generous, and your conversations perfectly, sparklingly, delectably uncomfortable.